Hello, and welcome back to my podcast, Cognitive Dissident. My name is Kalyani Saxena, and we're back for another episode. It's the first week of school. I'm getting back into the swing of things. It's my senior year. I don't know how I became an adult, and now I have to graduate and get a job, but we're going to forget about that and think about more positive things, like the state of foreign policy in our country. Yeah. But before we get into that, um, I'm just want to say welcome back. I'm sorry I've been gone for a little bit, but I'm super excited to get into the episode today. And I also wanted to let you know that my room is extremely warm and I turned off the fan because I want you guys to hear every word that I say. So I'm sweating buckets for you folks. So please let me know if you like this episode. Okay, so today's episode which I alluded to earlier, is going to be about foreign policy, specifically the 2020 candidates and their positions on foreign policy. I did an Instagram poll to see if you guys wanted an episode on foreign policy or healthcare, and this overwhelmingly won, which I think makes a lot of sense because if you've been watching the debates, if you've been reading the news, you're always hearing about what the 2020 candidates are saying, but you're not always hearing about what they're saying about the outside world. In fact, you're very rarely hearing about that. So I'm going to do my best to give you an idea of what their positions are on certain issues and what is going on. So let's get right into it. Let's begin by talking about the sources for today. We have Al Jazeera, The Rolling Stone, and Vox. I only have three, and I'll explain why in just a minute. And I also want to outline the structure for today's episode because we're going to be discussing a lot of information, and I want to make sure you have a frame to kind of guide you through the episode. So I'm going to talk to you today about two things. One, the candidates' general foreign policy alignments within the field. Where do they fall? How Are, are there any groupings? Are there any particular ideas that are more prevalent? So I'm going to talk about that. And then number two, I'm going to talk about the candidates' specific positions on a few issues, namely China, Israel, and the issue of military intervention. It's also really important that I preface this all by saying that the 2020 Democratic candidates haven't really discussed foreign policy, either in policy proposals they've put out or in the debates. When I was doing the research for this episode, I actually found very few articles. There were lots of articles on reproductive rights and gun laws and health care, but very little about foreign policy, which I think, of course, is very troubling because America is often thought of as, quote, you know, the leader of the free world. I don't know if I agree with that characterization, but... That is often the way that America is described, so you would think that anyone who's going to be the president of America has some idea about how to conduct themselves in the international world. However, we're not seeing that. But according to John Pfeffer, who is the director of the Foreign Policy and Focus Think Tank at the Institute for Policy Studies, apparently everything in politics has a super long name, According to him, there isn't really an incentive for candidates to discuss foreign policy with any depth or any frequency. And I really think that makes a lot of sense for this election cycle because most of the candidates are positioning themselves opposite to Trump. Right now, it feels a lot like a battle for America's soul. People don't necessarily care right now what America is going to be doing in Yemen? What are they going to be doing in Afghanistan? They don't really care right now. They want to know, am I going to have a job? Are you going to 
put curb the tide of white supremacy. That is really what's pressing in America right now, at least to a lot of people. Of course, there are people thinking about foreign policy, but not that many. So there hasn't been a large amount of articulation about ideas and there hasn't been debate most importantly we haven't seen candidates engage with one another about these issues which is super important because you need to be able to contrast these candidates you need to be able to look at this one and think okay well how is that different from what somebody else is saying and we're not really seeing that that being said there is some stuff out there and i have done my best to compile it and provide some comparisons that hopefully will be helpful to you as you're thinking about the election. All right, so one thing, one common trend that emerges with this field of candidates is that they're all pretty critical of Trump's foreign policy. And they're all emphasizing a need for change in the way we are right now. So everyone's like, what Trump's doing? It's the opposite of you do you boo. It's like we're going to do everything that that guy did not do. That it's like scrap that, we're starting all over. But that starting all over part has two very different approaches. So you have two main camps. And the first camp are the centrists or the people who are advocating for a return to the same old stuff that we've been doing. Not old necessarily, but more in line with Obama's policies. Of course, Joe Biden has, you know, been running like Obama's VP. I don't think he's been running as a presidential candidate. I think he's been running as Obama's VP. The way he he's still riding off of that that recognition and a lot of his policies and when he's challenged he's like well when I was working for Obama and it's like okay how about when you're working for the American people what are you gonna do then Joe Biden but he's been running as the Obama candidate um, and according to Paul Musgrave who's a political scientist specializing in foreign policy at UMass Amherst, he said that Joe Biden, as a, quote, Obama candidate, believes that the U.S. and its institutions may need some fixing, but they're basically sound. That was the quote. So Biden is calling for a change from Trump's foreign policy position, but not a drastic change. He wants to return to Obama and Um, a lot of emphasis on international institutions and, quote, the liberal world order, which is, you could take a whole IR class about this. Shout out to Professor Goddard if she's listening. Probably not, but shout out to her anyways. You could take a whole course about this. Um, The liberal world order basically refers to um, the structure of international institutions that... um, are involved in things like trade and human crises. So we're thinking the UN, IMF, World Bank. And of course, America's had a big role in all of those organizations. So the liberal world order does have America in a pretty primary position. And interestingly enough, aside from Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg is the other candidate who falls kind of firmly in this camp. He wants to keep things pretty much the same and also promote the liberal world order. He's a little bit more progressive than Joe Biden. Um, That's the big difference. He's not completely progressive, but he's 
in foreign policy, we're not talking about domestic issues, he's a little more progressive in that he is talking a little bit about reforming American capitalism and being a little more aggressive towards China. But at the same time, he's like, let's go back to what we've know, tried and tested, what's good, let's go back to that. So that's kind of camp one. Camp two is the progressive view of foreign policy. And Warren, Elizabeth Warren, and Joe Biden are... Um, both in this camp. And what's important to note about this is it kind of mimics their fo- their domestic policy. It, dem- it mimics their domestic positions really well. So Paul Musgrave, the man I talked about earlier, the political scientist from UMass Amherst, he also talked about these candidates, um, Warren and Biden, and said that their view is that the U.S. and those international in- institutions that I talked about earlier actually already have built-in prejudice and built-in um, problems that really serve to re-emphasize inequality in the world. So what they're saying is we need to reform these institutions so that we can see um, a difference in the concentration of wealth across the world. And, you know, this unequal concentration of wealth is creating international insecurity and conflict. And we want to change that. They believe that once they start changing that, this will have better life um, impacts for working class people across the world and will curb the tide of dictatorship and oligarchy. So they're saying what we've been doing, Trump's way is no good, but neither is the way before Trump. What we need is something different. We need to change the institutions themselves because even though they seem like they're helping, they're really re-emphasizing patterns of inequality. So those are the two main camps. And of course, all the candidates, um, besides the ones that I've mentioned, fall somewhere along that spectrum. They might be a little more progressive, they might be a little bit more centrist or traditionalist, but those are the two sorts of stances that we're thinking about. So now that I've outlined those general policy positions, I'm going to get into the specific issues that we've been talking about because I feel like that's pretty important. We want to talk about the concrete. So some the first issue we're going to be talking about is the question of military intervention. I don't think a lot of people in America realize this, but the rest of the world sometimes really doesn't like it when America pokes its nose into things. A lot of people across the world think about America as kind of like your nosy Indian auntie who's like always in your business and trying to fix you and making things worse and you're like hello ma'am may you please remove yourself from my space (laughs) but America hasn't really gotten that message in the past but it seems like maybe things are changing and Americans also have grown tired of military intervention if you think about it you know ever since 9-11 which was 18 years ago, wow, America has been in all kinds of places. And of course, it was involved in international intervention earlier, but this is this current era has been one of turmoil with Afghanistan and Iraq, and American people are tired, everybody else is tired. So there seems to be a general inclination away from military intervention. And you see this reflected in the front runners. Basically, all of them have said, 
you know, we kind of understand there isn't really a drive for military intervention, so they've been downplaying a lot of the military responses to tensions abroad. So when something bad happens in the newspaper, in the news, then peop- the candidates would respond, not necessarily with like, we need to put boots on the ground, but like with a, something a little more milder, a little more tempered. And a lot of them are just ignoring the questions about the U.S. is really tricky foreign intervention the places the u.s is stuck they're just like that question i'm sorry suddenly i don't understand english (laughs) they really just are ignoring them so they're staying away from a lot of the minefields that come with the question of military intervention we're not going to be seeing any of that early 2000s advocacy for war that's just that would be the equivalent of taking your campaign, wadding it up, and putting it in a trash can because people just don't want to go to war. Which, if you think about it, is really interesting considering that Trump himself is an isolationist. You see a lot of people, a lot of liberals, being critical of Trump and his isolationism. But at the same time, a lot of the candidates are advocating for a more restrained American presence. And that's not too different from Trump and his policies. That's also something to think about. And then think about that with the fact that our budget has so much towards military. Like, I don't understand how that works. How can we be withdrawing from the world but spending more on military? I'm not a math major, but something seems off. So there seems to be a general move away from advocacy for um, military intervention. And even Biden, who I guess is the most like a Democrat from the early 2000s because he was around then as he was when the dinosaurs were around, he has um, denounced U.S. support for Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen. So even he is like, oh, oh, I get it. Okay, we're not doing that anymore. We're not doing military intervention. Got it. Cool. Good. So he's shying away from it. And Pete Buttigieg went so far as to lay out um, some proposals at Indiana University in June when he, and he talked about replacing the 2001 authorization for the use of military force. I've never heard of this before, but apparently it gives the president unilateral authority to wage war. Yeah, it's pretty bad that we haven't heard about, or I haven't heard about that before, (laughs) Um, the fact that the president has that authority. So he's talking about really repealing that and making sure that the president can't just launch you into war, which is pretty in line with the rest of the candidates. Elizabeth Warren has been very vocal about the fact that she wants to pull troops out of Afghanistan and Iraq. And she also said you know, when the New York Times asked her, would you still have American troops in Afghanistan at the end of your first term? She was like, no, period. Now, whether that's a good idea or not, that's a separate issue. Let me know if you want me to do an episode analyzing the foreign policy. Now, all of this being said, all of this anti-military intervention is great, but I want to quote um, Samuel Moyne, who's a professor of history at Yale University. And he says... You need to reflect on the fact that the last two American presidents have run as anti-war candidates. Even though they ran and won as anti-war candidates, we know as both Trump and Obama governed as endless war candidates. So what he's saying there is you can, all these, you know, our, our most recent two presidents 
campaigned as people were like, we're done with the war, we're outie, that's over. And yet still, they governed as if war would be continuing, you know, forever. And that's not to say that they're liars, although Trump is a liar, but, (laughs) and, you know, being a president has some degree of lying to the public, I guess. But what I'm trying to say there is that there are a lot more constraints. It's very easy to make promises on the campaign trail than it is to deliver on those promises in practice. So I'm not quite sure that, you know, when these candidates are saying intervention, we're not doing that anymore, whether or not they're going to follow through on it and whether or not they're going to actually remove the troops from Afghanistan. So you got to take a lot of what they're saying with a pinch of salt, especially because they're not saying it on any official stage, like a debate stage. It's kind of just like in interviews and maybe on their website. So it's it's very vague and nothing's really holding them to it. It's also different in character because, for example, Obama had a very signature promise, which was we're bringing our troops home. And he said it again and again and again on the campaign trail. You don't see that sort of same language on the campaign trails now especially regarding foreign policy. You see it around other things. So there isn't necessarily going to be public pressure holding them accountable to these policies. Okay, let's move on. So the next issue we're going to be talking about is Israel. This was a really thorny one because there's a lot of division within the field about this particular issue. Military intervention, they're all kind of on the same page. Israel, they couldn't be on more different pages if they tried. Biden has stayed very true to form and has refrained from calling the occupation of the West Bank a human rights crisis. So he's like, we're not going to label it that. We're not going to inflame tensions with Israel, especially because it's been an American ally. And But he has called for a two-state solution. So he's, he's not being overly critical of Israel, but he's also not being like, this is good the way the situation is. We should just keep it like this. And interestingly enough, Pete Buttigieg has advocated and talked about positions that were pretty similar. What I think is really interesting about this moment and this agreement between the two and whenever they've spoken about policy is that for two candidates who really do position themselves as very different, Pete Buttigieg is like, I'm the young up-and-comer, I'm very different, I'm ready for change, and Joe Biden's like, I am an experienced politician. I don't know where that accent came from, but Joe Biden says, you know, I'm old, I know the game, I know what works. For two people who are positioning themselves as very different within the field, their foreign policy stances are somewhat similar. And I think that's really interesting to think about because it can be easy when you're reading about the whole um, election cycle to buy into that image that... Joe Biden is different from Pete Buttigieg and Pete is so different from Joe Biden and whichever one you find more compelling, you're likely to only absorb evidence that that aligns with that image that they've created for you. But the reality is quite different and that sometimes their policies are going to align. Candidates who may position themselves as very different in the field actually have some similarities. You have to look beyond just that initial posturing and look at, well, what are they actually saying they're going to do? So that's something to think about as well. Now, Kamala Harris is probably the most distinct in that she is on the rah-rah Israel train. She is very um, 
committed to the stance that America is Israel's ally and what's going on right now is okay. She told the New York Times that, quote, overall, Israel as a country meets international standards of human rights and is dedicated to being a democracy and is one of our closest friends in that region. And the U.S. should conduct foreign policy in a way that is consistent with understanding the alignment between the American people and the people of Israel. So if you read between the lines, what she's saying is Israel hasn't violated any human rights standards and they are one of our BFFs in the region. So let's not break that friendship and let's keep it going. And this has proven to be a little bit different from a lot of the progressive candidates in the Democratic Party, and a lot of people are critical for her, with, of her. You know, how can you advocate for solving injustice, which has been her platform, like, I'm a prosecutor, my job is to get rid of injustice, and then also not, not really publicly condemn um, the human rights abuses against Palestinians, according to the article. So that's one moment where she seems to be very different from a lot of the candidates in her field. And I don't think many people who, you know, saw that moment with her and Joe Biden debating about race, I don't think many people know about this other side. I think, like I said earlier, it's very easy to buy into the flashy moments. Not a lot of people really pay attention to what else is being said. I know I didn't when I was, you know, paying it. Attention to the 2016 election cycle. I was like, ah, yeah, Hillary. But I didn't, you, if you asked me about any of her policies, I literally couldn't have told you. And I think that's interesting with Kamala Harris as well, that you can't necessarily be like, oh, well, this is her one uniform image because she doesn't seem to have a concrete policy um, in the same way that Warren and, by, um, sorry, Warren and Bernie Sanders have really stuck to the platform that they've created. And speaking of Bernie Sanders, he is true to his platform and he has said that he would threaten to cut U.S. military aid to Israel and he also posted a video which compared apartheid South Africa to Israel's treatment of Palestine, uh, Palestinians, which is so far different from Kamala Harris and quite different from Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg. So you can see there's a lot of variety in which they're positioning themselves. And you have to ask yourself the question, which of this is going to be effective in actually winning them votes? I'm not entirely sure because, like I said, a lot of Americans aren't paying a lot of attention to foreign policy. But there does seem to be an interesting move away from America's long-held policy of just, you know, saying we are Israel's ally. I think Things seem to be shifting in terms of, you know, conversations. I do see people wanting um, the politicians to have hard conversations about what's going on in Israel between them and uh, the Palestinians. So there does seem to be a bit of a shift away from that. So that's to say, well, maybe Kamala Harris's unequivocal support for Israel isn't going to be as winning as she thinks it is, just as Joe Biden's... um, restraint in calling the West Bank situation a human rights crisis or refraining from calling it a human rights crisis might not be that appealing. So who knows, maybe Bernie's extreme comparison between um, South Africa and the treatment of Palestinians, maybe that'll win him more appeal. It, It remains to be seen. But this is one issue where you see a lot of difference in position. So now we're going to talk about the last issue, which is China. And 
interestingly enough, a lot of what they have talked about hasn't necessarily been about trade, but about the detention of uh, Uyghur Muslims in detention camps in China, which if you're wondering what that's about, listen to my episode DNA and Detainment. This is not a plug. I mean, it is kind of a plug, but go and listen if you want to know what that's about. But basically, um, the... Chinese government has been using DNA technology to round up um, Uyghurs, which are a ethnic minority in China. So Biden, Sanders, Buttigieg, and Booker and Castro, who we haven't talked a lot about, but they have all pledged to sanction the people running these detention camps, not China as a whole, but um, the people running the camps, and then put those companies that built the detention camps and the surveillance systems on the Commerce Department's entity list. If that sounds like a big, you know, list of acronyms, what it really means is this would reduce those businesses' ability to work with American companies. So they've taken a stance against it, as well as Elizabeth Warren, who sent a letter to the Trump administration, which I'm not sure how that effective, how effective that'll be, but she sent the letter, um, saying that there should be sanctions against Chinese um, officials overseeing the mass detention of these um, Uyghurs. So that, they all seem to be aligned in that respect. Um, as for trade, there is a lot of difference in how they're talking about China. Joe Biden has downplayed the threat it has posed to the U.S. at a campaign rally, not at like an official forum. And that seems to be very at odds with Bernie Sanders, who interestingly enough has views which are quite similar to Trump's on the issue. He's, Bernie Sanders has gone even further than Trump and he's called China a currency manipulator. And Elizabeth Warren has also been aggressive towards China and she has supported tariffs on Chinese goods. And I think this is also really interesting to talk about because so many people are stressed right now about the trade war that China and Trump are engaging in. And a lot of, I've heard a lot of people, um, a lot of Democrats say, oh, Trump, you know, he's messing with the economy and he's, um, which that is a whole separate issue, but have been very angry about the way that Trump's been um, conducting himself with China. But the fact is, it's if either Elizabeth Warren or Joe Biden, sorry, Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders were elected, it's not likely that this sort of approach towards China would change, which is really startling to think about because you always think about Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren being the polar opposite of Trump. But in this regard, the policy would remain the same. And this particular um, worry about uh, a recession being triggered by this trade war wouldn't necessarily be different underneath either Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. So that was something I learned and hopefully you just learned (laughs) And then Pete Buttigieg has also talked about China being a challenge to the U.S. Um, He was less uh, extreme, I would say, as uh, Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren and was like, we should invest in ourselves so that China's tech doesn't take us over. So if you're looking at a feel, if you're looking at a spectrum, Joe Biden is the least concerned about China. Pete Buttigieg is more concerned than him and then Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are like hitting the panic button like you wouldn't believe they've broken the panic button at this point so that's a short and sweet on China now before I conclude the episode I want to leave you 
oh, well, I guess this is the conclusion. I want to leave you with some takeaways, um, some key in the, you know, after looking at syllabi all week, some learning objectives for this uh, podcast. The first thing that I want you to take away is that there are two distinct camps of thought um, um, amongst the front runners in the field. And then this lends itself to very different policy on issues like Israel and China. You have candidates like Biden and Buttigieg who really don't want to shake things up and they're less likely to take a strong stance against Israel or China versus Bernie who's ready, you know, to sanction and change things up against both Israel and China. And then you have both Warren and Biden who are talking about system change and are ready to get aggressive with China. And strangely enough, that means they're a little bit closer to Trump's policies in this regard. So it's it's interesting to think about the fact that the system change doesn't necessarily mean that everything is going to be all liberal policy, free markets, etc. Although, whether the idea of free markets and trade is a liberal idea is up for debate. But that's a whole separate topic. But above all, I want to conclude by saying we should be concerned with how ill-articulated the majority of these policies are. Yes, it's important to talk about domestic issues. Yes, the American people are the ones who vote you into office. But the way you behave and the way you conduct yourself and the policies you pursue in the international arena can often determine whether or not you stay in office. So, thank you so much for listening. This is the end of today's episode, and I will see you next time. Please let me know if you have any thoughts, comments, or questions, and thank you for listening.